so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian Hyde. Hello there and welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show here on the America Out Loud Network. Well, we're going to have some fun today learning all about how to become a super spreader of truth. And you know, the the great news is there are some fine examples out there of people who are doing a very good job of this. Joe Rogan, probably one of the better examples right now on a lot of people's minds too, as he has been deemed a menace by authoritative mainstream sources. Maybe you've heard about this, but what a fascinating story. So Joe Rogan, yes, the the comedian turned uh, television host, turned martial artist. uh, You know, he's got a very popular podcast. I think uh, he averages 11 million views per episode. You compare that to CNN's 800,000 views. That's in their most prime time slot. The best audience they have at any given time. 800,000 viewers. Rogan's got him beat by like an order of magnitude. He's, he is, he's really amazing. And it's not because Joe has all the answers. Um, I think that this is probably the clearest sign of the times that we live in where, where information is is deemed, you know, so dangerous or so essential that you can only believe this and nothing else. But Joe Rogan is definitely reaching a group of people who just want to hear open conversation. The guests he has on, the kinds of questions he asks, tend to attract people who are in the habit of thinking for themselves. And without getting too dramatic, I, I think it's safe to say there are Those that uh, are in positions of power or positions of authority that really don't like the idea of you and I thinking for ourselves. So I guess the bottom line is when you hear someone referred to as a menace by authoritative mainstream sources, that's a pretty good sign the individual in question is doing a fine job of challenging the official narrative. Now, Jordan Schachtel, in his uh, dossier substack, does a marvelous job of taking apart mainstream media claims that 270 doctors have petitioned Spotify to deplatform Joe Rogan. But do you realize the authors of that letter, the vast majority of the people who signed the letter, are not medical doctors? Just a handful are actually, actually practicing physicians. So why should that matter? Well, take a look. Here's what Jordan Schachtel has to say. He says, are you seeing all of those blaring corporate press headlines describing Joe Rogan this weekend, reporting on a letter from 270 doctors, which described the famous podcaster as a menace to public health? Well, it turns out the real arbiters of misinformation 
are the individuals behind the letter itself. And they're being helped along by a corporate, a corrupt corporate media that's misreporting the credentials of its signatories. Now, it was first reported by Rolling Stone with a story titled, Doctors Demand Spotify Put an End to COVID Lies on Joe Rogan Experience. And this was quickly picked up by other news outlets. Here's a headline from The Guardian. Menace to public health. 270 doctors call out Spotify over Joe Rogan's podcast. An open letter expresses concern about COVID misinformation and specifically addresses an episode with virologist Robert Malone. Salon quickly followed suit. Doctors urged Spotify to stop enabling Joe Rogan to damage public trust in scientific research. He's just making a better case than than your scientists are, are making. I put those in air quotes, by the way. Believe the scientism. The headline here in Salon, uh, Spotify is responsible for allowing COVID misinformation to thrive on its platform, the letter reads. Or Jordan, Jordan Schachtel says, yes, the media and big tech want to create the image of a hundred strong coalition of medical doctors genuinely concerned about Joe Rogan's conversations on his massive platform. Here's a headline from the Washington Examiner. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, Joe Rogan has repeatedly spread misleading and false claims on his podcast, provoking distrust in science and medicine, the doctors said in the letter. Rogan has been a regular subject of controversy at Spotify. Twitter even got in on the propaganda campaign against Rogan, adding this medical experts letter to their curated headline section. What's happening? More than 270 medical experts call out Spotify and Joe Rogan for spreading COVID-19 misinformation. Now, here's the difference between uh, Jordan Schachtel and people who will just soak up those headlines. Okay, I don't know the story, but I read the headline, and therefore I think I know enough. And, and sadly, there are a lot of people. We've probably done this ourselves. You see the headline, ah, that just confirms what I already knew. But for those who actually read, and in this case, Jordan Schachtel, reviewed this open letter, care to guess what he found out? He says, well, it turns out only about 100 of the 270-plus signatories to the letter are actually people with qualified medical degrees. And a large chunk of that 100 or so medical doctors are MDs employed at universities who are not, in fact, practitioners of medicine. Yet part of, the letter, part of that letter reads, As physicians, we bear the arduous weight of a pandemic that has stretched our medical systems to their limits. It only stands to be exacerbated by the anti-vaccination sentiment woven into this and other episodes of Rogan's podcast. Now, Jordan Schachtel says, paradoxically, the disseminators of this petition are guilty of the very misinformation label they've attached to Rogan. In fact, neither of the two reported co-authors of this letter, Jessica Rivera and Ben Rhine, possess medical degrees. Rivera holds a master's degree. Rhine is a Ph.D. academic who researches psychiatry. The letter denouncing Rogan and pressuring Spotify to censor his speech has all kinds of random signatories. And Jordan Schachtel did the math. He says, by my count, this letter is signed by over 50 Ph.D. academics, around 60 college professors, 29 nurses, 10 students, 4 medical residents, and even a handful of science podcasters. 
Now, the letter which calls, which uses the word misinformation nine times in five paragraphs concludes with a call for Spotify to censor Rogan as part of a policy to moderate misinformation on the platform. Now, notably, there is no information on who or what group is behind the creation and circulation of the open letter. Rivera, the reported lead author of the letter, is associated with the far-left Rockefeller Foundation and The Atlantic, and she is a CNN contributor. I mean, I don't know how much more bold it could get. I don't, I don't know how much more clear it could be. And it's not that I have extraordinary hour, you know, powers of, of observation here. But it just seems to me that the, the, the press is so all in to ingratiate itself and to serve as the enforcers of approved opinion for the powers that be. I can't take them seriously. If they tell me the sun is shining, I'm either going to have to walk outside to look or I'm just going to assume, nah, they're wrong. They're always wrong. It's, I mean, it's, it's truly, it's Orwellian. The way that the, the, this enforcement of correct thought and this, this punishment of, of wrong think is being pursued. And yet you can't argue with the fact that Joe Rogan is enjoying immense success, not because he's telling people what they want to hear so much as just simply giving them an opportunity to hear information and then decide for themselves. I know Brian Stelter on CNN was just uh, complaining about how, you know, ratings are way down, you know, at most mainstream news media sources. And he was really concerned. I mean, he was actually, you know, emoting to one of his uh, co-hosts about how, how are people going to get the information that they need? My friend Connor Boyack retweeted it and just had the word information in quotes. Information. Yes, this is the information we need. Yeah, it's more like it's the propaganda. It's the indoctrination. It's the talking points. It's the narrative that we're supposed to be following. And maybe I'm just an odd person for, for thinking this way. I certainly don't think I'm anything special, but the last thing in the world that I want to do is be the kind of person who sits there with my hat in my hand, looking at someone in a position of authority, whether it be political authority or, you know, some authority who's dispensing information over one of these mainstream platforms, and sitting there nodding my head going, this is what I'm supposed to believe, right? Uh-huh, I believe, I believe, like I'm, I'm a good boy. Can I have a cookie now? Look, I'm not some hard-boiled, uh, you know, investigative reporter. But I'm a person who can think for himself. And I suspect you would not be listening to this program right now if you were not a person who can think for yourself and chooses to think for yourself and is willing to get your hands dirty, at least in the intellectual sense, of digging and finding truth, whatever it may be. Now, sometimes that means we have to confront things that we really don't want to. Questions will come up and things we have to sort out for ourselves. But my point is we're not children. And I don't think it's out of line for any reasonable adult who thinks for himself or herself to react negatively when someone insists that you behave like a child. Just, you know, we just want you to just shut up and keep that childlike sense of wonder and believe every word that we tell you. I suspect if we were to ask why, the answer would be somewhere between because I said so or it's for your own good. But I want to make very clear, I have parents. 
And their job, in cooperation with God, was to raise me to be a good, decent, clear-thinking person. That doesn't necessarily mean we're going to all agree ideologically on, on certain issues. But we can agree on basic things, right? What is right? What is wrong? Is it, is it okay to force people to do something that you think is good for them? I mean, it's one thing with uh, my mom forcing me to eat my broccoli because it was good for me, you know, in order to, to get dessert or to be dismissed from the dinner table. It's quite another thing when people start using state force to try to make people do what they want. And I don't think that mindset is as widespread as we're supposed to believe that it is. I believe that the mainstream media tries to to infect our minds with the idea that, oh, yeah, you know, everybody, everybody thinks this way. Every reasonable, polite, acceptable person thinks like this. You are the outlier. I think the outliers are people like the Salt Lake Tribune ed- uh, editorial board which was openly exploring, well, you know, I think our political class has failed us because the governor should be activating the National Guard to check people's vaccination status and to prevent the unvaccinated from going, well, just about anywhere. No, that's, I'm not making that up. That is a real editorial from the Salt Lake Tribune editorial board. Where does that kind of oppressive thinking originate? How sick in the head do you have to be to think that, uh, well, you know, because we know what's best, it's okay to advocate for the use of force against people who have harmed no one. Or maybe they're just, you know, totally caught up in the the COVID narrative. I'm grateful for people like Joe Rogan. I think that uh, this may be the crack in the dam that uh, hopefully sets loose not just his voice, but a torrent of voices who are willing to seek and speak the truth, no matter the cost. And regardless of the protests and the official attempts to try to shut them down and deplatform them. Why do you suppose it is Spotify hasn't kicked Joe Rogan off its platform already? I can tell you exactly why. Because he makes them a boatload of money. They're profiting very nicely. And it's, it's not because, you know, they're exploiting him. I mean, they're... They're carrying his program because he attracts a large audience. I think the bigger question is, how does he attract that large audience? And I think it's safe to say the truth of the matter is, he does it by not being so ideologically wed to just one way of seeing the world, but he actually seems to be a sincere seeker of truth. And when he has guests on his program, he asks them good, penetrating questions, And then he allows them to answer. But most importantly, do you know why people keep coming back to his show? I can't speak for everybody, but I'll speak for myself. Because he allows his guests to speak. He lets them say what they're going to say and doesn't feel like he has to change them or otherwise fix or, you know, know, make what they say conditional. uh, You know, you have to say it this way if I'm going to accept that. He doesn't play those games. He actually lets his audience make up their own mind. What a concept. I'm going to shift gears here. I'm going to ask you something. When it comes to assessing the damage done by the COVID lockdowns, I'm pretty sure the question we're going to be asking ourselves for generations is, what might have been? How could this have gone differently? 
I've got a piece here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute, breaking down the timeline and explaining exactly where it all went horribly wrong. Jeffrey Tucker says, we'll be putting together the timeline of this disaster for many years to come. It all comes down to those fatal days between January and March 2020, from the news out of China to the lockdowns in northern Italy to the lockdowns in the U.S. Now, the documented and admitted record is clear, and this is the source of scandal, he says, in his view. Top public health officials in the U.S., U.K., and Australia spent the good part of six weeks obsessing over whether the virus was a lab leak, accidental, or deliberate, and therefore what the political spin should be if it turned out to be true. Now, something certainly happened to change the script in the last week of February. On February 25th to 2020, Anthony Fauci wisely told CBS News the following, You cannot avoid having infections since you cannot shut off the country from the rest of the world. Do not let the fear of the unknown distort your evaluation of the risk of the pandemic to you relative to the risks that you face every day. And do not yield to unreasonable fear. But the next day, something shifted. Fauci wrote an email to the actress Morgan Fairchild that read as follows, quote, Thanks for the note and the offer to help. It would be great if you could tweet to your many Twitter followers that although the current risk of coronavirus to the American public is low, the fact that there is community spread of virus in a number of countries besides China poses a risk that we may progress to a global pandemic of COVID-19. And so for that reason, the American public should not be frightened, but should be prepared to mitigate an outbreak in this country by measures that include social distancing, teleworking, temporary closure of schools, etc. There is nothing to be done right now since there are so few cases in this country. And Jeffrey Tucker points out with an editorial annotation, there's no way Fauci could have known this at that point. And these cases are being properly isolated, so go about your daily business. However, be aware that behavioral adjustments may need to be made if a pandemic occurs. End quote. And just like that, suddenly lockdowns were on the table. And we know what happened next. Fauci and Dr. Burks worked over the coming weeks to warm Trump up to the idea, culminating in the March 16, 2020 press conference that announced lockdowns to the nation. Now, two weeks earlier from March 3rd, at least, we had very good reports of the evidence out of China concerning the risk profiles of people who were vulnerable to the virus. Quote, the new coronavirus is not an equal opportunity killer. Being elderly and having other illnesses, for instance, greatly increases the risk of dying from the disease the virus causes, COVID-19. It's also possible that being male could put you at increased risk. For both medical and public health reasons, researchers want to figure out who's most at risk of being infected and who's most at risk of developing severe or even lethal illness. With that kind of information, clinicians would know whom to treat more aggressively. Government officials would have a better idea of steps to take, and everyone would know whether they need to take special additional precautions. Elderly patients were more likely to develop ARDS, the researchers wrote, suggesting that suggesting how age can make COVID-19 more severe and even fatal. Age increases the risk that the respiratory system will basically shut down under the viral assault. Youth, in contrast, seem to be protective. The World Health Organization mission reported a relatively low incidence in people under 18 who only made up 2.4% of all reported cases. 
In fact, through mid-January, zero children in Wuhan, the epicenter of the outbreak, had contracted COVID-19. It's not clear whether that's because children do not show signs of illness, even if infected. Even in, in even cases among children and teens ages 10 to 19 are rare. As of February 11th, there were 549 cases in that group, 1.2% of the total China CDC's, China's CDC found. Only one had died. Now, Jeff Tucker says, again, this article ran on March 3rd, 2020. Everyone on planet Earth knew this two weeks before the lockdowns. And he says, so far as I know, the data has not changed that much since then. We knew that elderly people with health problems were the vulnerable population. We knew for sure that young people were not. We knew that adults would struggle with this virus and would need care. And he says it's not too much of a stretch, nor does it take a good deal of topical specialization to imagine the outlines of a good public health response. Inform the public of what is coming or what is already here. Alert vulnerable populations to stay away from environments where infection is likely to occur. Calm down young people and keep their lives functioning as normal. Get to work examining the best possible therapeutics for dealing with the sick, among which would surely include repurposed drugs that have had success in the past in dealing with such infections. Otherwise, we could have done exactly what Dr. Fauci said we should do on February 25th. Do not let the fear of the unknown distort your evaluation of the risk of the pandemic to you relative to the risks you face every day. Do not yield to unreasonable fear. So protect the old, let the young live their lives, research on the best means of treatment, minimizing fatalities on the road to endemicity. In other words, the Great Barrington Declaration. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says it's not rocket science, nor is it the clarity that only hindsight provides. This kind of response is precisely what prevailing information would have dictated to anyone. But instead... All hell broke loose with wild and experimental lockdowns that seemed designed for the whole population to avoid the virus. Well, not the whole population, but the professional Zoom class in particular, while essential workers exposed themselves to the disease. Other outrages included especially exposing elderly people rather than protecting them. Schools were closed, the medical system locked down. In other words, the policy response was the opposite of what public health would have recommended. And as a result, the public was at a loss as to the real risks. Elderly people underestimated their risk, while younger people overestimated it, and by huge amounts. Young people even today are surprised by their mild symptoms, while people in their 50s or older are stunned to find themselves under the weather for weeks at a time. After two years, when finally the Zoom class is meeting the virus... They are rather amazed to discover its symptoms and treatments. Now, that's just remarkable, says Jeff Tucker, and it's a reflection of how the policy response never accounted for the disparity of risk, but rather pursued a population-wide strategy that protected no one except the professional class for as long as possible. And he asks, why did this happen? Why did Farrar, Fauci, Collins, Burks, and the whole rest of the gang that had been living on burner phones and holding secret meetings for a full month not openly explain to the public the risks and what to do about them? Why did they choose instead a policy of lockdowns, panic, and disorientation that resulted in astonishing economic, social, cultural, and political carnage? Well, Tucker says, uh, we'll be asking these questions for a very long time. 
but it's impossible not to imagine the counterfactuals. In fact, he got to work early on researching the responses to previous pandemics, 1968 to 69, 1957 to 58, for example. And the response was very clear. Keep calm. See your doctor if you're sick, avoid the pathogen if you're vulnerable, and keep society functioning while we meet the virus as we always have, upgraded immune systems to take care of the newest threat. Yes, vaccines can be a part of that if the pathogen is stable enough to be treated. Yeah, it's not like we were in the dark and this is the first time we'd ever encountered anything like this before. All the public health officials who said, well, we had no choice but to lock it down. They're lying. They saw no choice. They chose to see no other choice. You are listening to the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. Is a record player the best way to listen to music? Of course not. So why are you still taking vitamins that haven't been upgraded since the 1930s? Even if your vitamins aren't hard to swallow... It's time to upgrade to Healthy Cells pill-free, patent-pending microgel supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. They taste great, convenient on the go, and they're more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to the show. So I promised in today's show, I would be sharing some thoughts on how to become a super spreader of courage. That sounds daunting, right? And I think what's going to shock you, at least what shocked me, is to learn how how absolutely simple it is. Sometimes it's the little things that make the biggest possible difference when it comes to infecting others with courage at a time where courage is sorely needed. I'm going to turn to Alan Stevo on this one. Alan has been a very regular contributor on LouRockwell.com, possibly one of the best voices out there for giving people practical advice on how to deal with the lockdowns, how to successfully navigate stores with masking policies. And by the way, I guess I guess the masking policies are popping up in all kinds of places. Washington, D.C., has just implemented a very strict masking and social distancing policy and, you know, vaccine passports. New York City's had it for some time. Boston just put it in place over the weekend. Whew. I know. We. I was feeling like, you know, maybe this is going to return to some semblance of reality. But no. People in power want to keep it going. 
I can only imagine why. And for a person to navigate those choppy waters, is it's going to require courage. Alan Stevo's advice is separate yourself from those lacking courage. Group yourself with the courageous. Now, this is going to make some people pretty upset because that's going to sound a lot like, what, do you think you're better than the rest of us? I don't know if I would say better. It's not like we're making a judgment on a person's soul, but I also think there's a certain amount of truth to um, you're judged by the company you keep and birds of a feather flock together and all of that. Here's how Alan Stevo puts it. He says, it has been said that a bad apple ruins the barrel. When putrefaction spreads, sometimes it gets the healthy tissue too. Now he says, the Bible advises repeatedly to separate yourselves from those who are not of high standards. And it says this in many different ways. Separation seems to be so important that it even advises death, the ultimate separation of a person from society, for any number of aberrations from upstanding behavior. Now, does that mean that he's suggesting going around killing people? No. But to separate yourself from those who are not to your standards makes a whole lot of sense at this stage in the trajectory of corona communism. Alan Stevo says the Bible an uncountable number of times references people who are set apart rather than people who are not set apart. Sure, he says, I've encountered a few cowardly readers of these pages in which I'm writing, but overwhelmingly courageous lions come to this place. In fact, he says, if you are reading this, there's a good chance that you are one set apart. So it may be time to start treating yourself like that. You are not a social pariah, no matter what some others may believe. You are not a second-class citizen, no matter what some others may claim. You are the foundation upon which a new America will be built. So he says, stop accepting the negative narrative from those who want to demoralize you. Stop letting those who are not set apart from speaking into your life. Stop letting the dribbles of discouragement fall upon your ears, your mind, your heart, your soul. And he also points out that the discouragement can come from friend or foe alike. He says it may even be far easier to accept coming from a friend through like through the 24-7 news cycle. Social media and streaming movie services so central in the lives of so many that they make the harmful, discouraging narratives so present on the ears. Now, Alan Stevo writes, there was a time in which marketers at Coca-Cola understood it would take about 14 touches to get a person to drink a Coke. Today, that number is higher and a qualitative factor plays a role. The marketplace is flooded with people vying for your attention, trying to influence your thoughts and behavior. You are in the midst of a great war for your mind. It is a war for you, your home, and your family. Your enemy knows those can be won by winning on the battlefield of your mind. Now, some say China is the pivotal front line of our era. The Chinese Communist Party may be part of it, but they're a small player in it. The flesh and blood you are fighting all wave the American flag when convenient. They have their homes on U.S. soil when convenient. They send their kids, if they have kids, to U.S. schools when convenient. But even these people I mentioned, the people of influence I mentioned, may be mere pawns subject to the spiritual battle. 
Okay, so I need to I need to do a quick aside here. It is a spiritual battle. Now, for people who live and breathe politics, that's maybe not something they want to hear. I have a number of friends who are very much, you know, hey, I believe what I can touch. I believe what I can quantify with my five senses. And if I can't quantify it with my five senses, then it isn't real. I don't know that I've ever fully believed that, but there were times in my life where I would have been much harder to convince that, yes, there is a spiritual reality and it drastically affects and is a part of our physical reality. But I definitely land in that camp these days where I believe that what we are seeing play out before us is part of a spiritual battle that has been going on forever. And it is a battle between light and darkness. The names and faces change, but the dynamic that drives this battle is consistent. And if I was pressed as to, well, what's what's the goal of this battle? What is the ultimate question over which this conflict is taking place? My answer would be, will man be free? In fact, I can remember at least uh, one uh, uh, one prominent uh, theologian who made the comment, uh, you could sum up the entire history of mankind in the question, will man be free? Back to uh, the article here from Alan Stevo. Some say that China is the pivotal front line of our era. And he says the Chinese Communist Party may be part of it, but they are a small player in it. The flesh and blood you are fighting all wave the American flag. Think about that. Our opponents in the war recognize that it can all be conquered through you. Everyone has a breaking point. Everyone. So this begs the question, how many touches does it take to discourage you? How many touches does it take to make you change your mind? How many touches does it take to shift your opinion? What toxins can they inject into discussion to turn your thinking toxic? And he admits we're all guilty of it. We are each imperfect. I know. I doubt a single person reading this is without a few moments from time to time in which a news story knocks him back, in which a news story gets in his head, in which a news story gets him to say, even if just for a moment, all is lost. But his point here is say that and you lose. You become part of the other team. Even if only for a few minutes, that's who you are then fighting for. So if you go around speaking those words to others, you are that much more fighting on the side of the enemy. Alan Stevo says to win, you need to maintain faith that this will work. Such will get you through thick and thin. This is even more true in this psychological war than it is in a kinetic war. Now he says there are people who can fire a gun and kill an enemy from 50 feet. Now sometimes that same person, though, can't look in the eye of another person in a role of presumed authority while telling him what he expects from that person in order to get through his day more enjoyably and more freely. Great valor is shown in times of war. But he says one must recognize that great valor also happens in daily life. And the valor of daily life is the valor that matters so much. And it is the valor that prevents kinetic wars from ever taking place. Alan Stevo says, when you show that valor, you shift the boundaries of possibility in life and in the world around you. The faith to believe in a virtuous outcome alongside this valor required to walk out this faith are two of our most powerful weapons at a time like this. 
but he says many don't treat them as such. Many do not recognize that those who hold those weapons and have the ability to skillfully use them are more valuable than an elite Navy SEAL team. They're more valuable than a high-ranking politician. They are more valuable than CEOs, bishops, and media stars. If they are the true treasures of this era, he asks, then why do we surround ourselves with people who actively spend their time discouraging those abilities in us, dulling the edges of our swords, offering us alluring touches from the enemy that eventually catch up with us? So here's the real question that he's asking. Why do we not see ourselves for the elite warriors that we are? Alan Stevo says, maybe you're planning on becoming a second-class citizen. Maybe you're planning on being locked into a FEMA camp. Well, he says, as for me and my house, we will walk out our values. We will live in blessings, both coming in and going out. We will walk in faith and not fear. As for FEMA camps, he says, I have no such intentions for myself and will not speak any such fear into the world around me. When I catch myself not guarding my words and joking around about such nonsense as FEMA camps or second-class citizenship, putting that toxicity into the air, he says, then I immediately stop myself. Because you know what? It can happen. Mistakes happen all the time. But at such a moment, we look around, we realize that we're rolling in the dust with the enemy exactly where he wants us to be. We pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and ask, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? What can I be doing better next time? And then we do it. We grow. We demand more of ourselves. We do better next time. Alan Stevo says you can be forgiven for mistakes. Just return to the touchstones that will get you to the victorious side of this battle. More important than any mistakes is your recognition that you are better than that. Your recognition that you set the trajectory of your life. Your recognition that you set the pace for the world around you. Because the truth is, you are better than that. If you are a person of valor, you are a one percenter in the world around you. Now, you may or may not be a one percenter in terms of money or a one percenter in terms of global power, but he says you may, however, possess the one percent status that actually matters at a time like this. I really like that. Under the concept of generational theory, it is in fourth turnings like this one that people once called average end up becoming the subject of textbooks the children study for the next 300 years. Do you recognize the gift that you have been given to be born in the most powerful country on earth, the freest country on earth, at a time of such global tyranny, and to be able to fight a battle in your own life that can echo out into the world around you with global ramifications for centuries. And Alan Stevo says, if you did, you might treat yourself differently. If you did, you might weigh your every action more seriously. If you did think this way, you might treat your elite status, your elite tools, your social circle you choose a bit differently. So, he says, you may be ready for your second-class citizenship status. But I'm not. He says, I've been treated like a VIP in virtually every store I have walked into since Corona Communism began. I've made sure others saw me as one set apart. 
I made sure to pick myself up as soon as I realized I was rolling in the dust with the devil. I made sure that I was not accepting any media narrative. Now, that mostly has meant that I unplug from the narrative and base my understanding of reality on the world around me. And when I need data about the outside world, I seek out some narrative-free, quality data sources. By the way, if you're not familiar with Alan Stevo, he has literally written the book on face masks in one lesson and has some just solid advice on how to get around the mask enforcers, not through confrontation and not through anger and puffing up and being bigger and more intimidating, but simply through talking to someone with the ability to make decisions in that retail establishment and telling them, I cannot safely wear a mask. How can you help me? And when someone says, well, I'm sorry, there's just nothing we can do. Well, you'll, you know, we can, we can offer you know, some alternative, but you'll still have to wear the mask. Then you have the courage to say, I'm sorry, but that will not work for me. What else could we do? You see what he's doing there? It's, it's very polite. It's very conversational. But he'll get a hold of the manager of a store. He'll read the actual policy beforehand. Not just their press release, but the actual written policy that some lawyer drew up for these retail establishments regarding their masks or social distancing or vax passports or whatever. So he goes into the situation armed with that knowledge and with a determination that I'm not going to back down, but I'm not going to be unpleasant about it either. If it doesn't work for me, I just simply tell him it doesn't, that doesn't work for me or that will not work. What else could we do? And I don't think he's exaggerating when he says, you know, he has been treated like a VIP in just about every store that he's gone into because they knew ahead of time that he was coming. They made the accommodations necessary to tell their staff, we're going to have a guy coming in here who cannot safely wear a mask. Leave him alone. I know some people thrive on the idea of, you know, confrontation. They they want to get in and, uh, you know, stir things up, you know, fight the good fight. I can't blame you for wanting to do that. But I think Alan Stevo may have a better way here. And when he talks about, you know, being treated like a VIP in virtually every store he's walked into since the corona communism began, it's not because he went in there with a puffed up, inflated sense of self. And yeah, uh-huh, it don't get much better than me. And just by sheer arrogance and, and confidence, bowled everybody over. He showed respect. He got respect in return, but he knew what their policy said. Now, maybe you do some of the same things. Maybe if you find yourself rolling around in the dust with the devil, if you find yourself repeating some of those fearful phrases that are designed to cause people psychological distress and cause them to feel as though, you know, it's all lost. There's no way. None of this is going to work. Maybe you're one of those people who's learned to unplug from the media narrative. To trust your senses as to what reality is and what you see in the world around you. And of course, when you need more understanding about the outside world, to go digging for it yourself and become your own fact checker. Alan Stevo says many who read these pages do exactly the same. But he says, I don't think many who read these pages recognize they are the elites of society that they are the foundations of the new America. 
And he says if they realized that about themselves, I think they would much more enjoyably separate themselves out from the people who really are just average. Because the net effect of surrounding yourself with the average is to dull your sword, dull your senses, dull your elite advantage. Far from deserving a responsive whining, a person close to you showing his true colors and no longer wanting anything to do with you is a gift that offers you so much benefit as a refining fire because it clarifies the values of those around you and focuses them into agreement with your own. So Alan Stevo says, now more than ever is a time to be in the midst of the iron that can sharpen iron. To be in the midst of those who you barely feel worthy of being around. To be in the midst of the elite of our day as much as possible and to let them demand high standards of you. For you to demand high standards of them and for you to elevate each other as you go through daily life. It's time to recognize your elite status. It is a time to honor that in you. It is a time to separate yourself. Now, I know some people might misinterpret what Alan Stevo is saying here as, uh, wow, you are just putting yourself up on a pedestal and look how lofty and, you know, how great I am. That's a status kind of mindset. This is more about someone recognizing who they are and choosing consciously to live up to the standards of who they are. And I'm not one to sit there and dictate to you, this is, this is who you are, this is how you have to see yourself. That's something we each have to sort out on our own. But if I know that I am a son of God, and I really believe in my heart that that's what I am, then I think it's in my interest to live as a son of God would live. And that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, I have to, you know, only hang around people who are, are saintly. I mean, if look, if, if winning souls to God is part of what you're called to do, then uh, you're going to have to go among the lepers. You're going to have to go among the prostitutes and the sinners and the, the people who are unclean. But we're talking about just simply living your life. And in this case, that elite status that he's talking about is, is recognizing that you are a person who knows what your rights are, you know who you are, you know what you stand for, and above all that, you are willing to do it, even in the face of almost universal opposition. I don't know what the percentages are. I mean, it may be 1%. It might even be less. Sometimes it feels like less. But here's what happens when you choose to live up to that truth. You become a source of infection, Not COVID, but courage. You infect the people around you with courage because they see it can be done. And if it's hard, they can see that it can be done. I don't know how to pronounce the tennis player's name. Um, He's he's got like a Serbian name that I'm going to butcher if I try to say it. But he has been trying to play at the Australian Open. And Australia, because of his unvaccinated status, has uh, moved to deport him from the country. They, They think he is a real threat. Now, this tennis player has enough celebrity status. I'm sure if he wanted to, he could find a doctor who would say, hey, wink, wink, here's your vaccination card. I gave you the shots. Uh, Put this Band-Aid on your arm and, uh, you know, go out there and just play it up, you know, claiming that you're fully vaccinated. 
He could have done that, but he didn't. Why? Because he is honoring his status as someone who walks in the truth. And it's costing him. I mean, it's costing him dearly. He's paying a price, but I don't know. The longer I live, the more I'm, I'm convinced the people who are willing to pay the, tri- the price for, for living up to their beliefs, those are the kind of people I want to be around. Because they're very rare. That makes their, their influence very real, and it uh, makes their friendship all the more precious. All right, I'm going to shift gears. One last thought here. Courage is a very rare thing to encounter these days. And Paul Rosenberg has a terrific explanation on why the West no longer has a backbone. He says the West lost its backbone for a very simple reason. It lost its meta-narrative. In other words, its overarching story for what we believe and do. Paul Rosenberg says the people of the West have no why for what they're doing save to fill their bellies and beds. Even their greatest dogma, democracy, is just an empty shell. Nothing could have made that point better than the past two years when the world was turned upside down by edicts from potentates, precisely the thing democracy was supposed to prevent, while the belly fillers of the West made not a peep. Now, by contrast, The Mongols had a meta-narrative. Now, it was a terribly ugly one, but it organized their energies and efforts, allowing them to overrun most of the known world. Meta-narratives aren't always nice. The Romans had a meta-narrative, too. Not the best, but definitely not the worst. Early Europe had a grand meta-narrative, bringing the world into the light of Christ. By it, they became the first civilization in history to eliminate slavery from an entire continent and to keep it out century after century, among other successes. Now, America also had a wonderful meta-narrative. We were proving to the world that individual liberty was better than servitude. We went about to prove it, and we did prove it. From where, after all, did railroads, electricity, telephones, radio, the electric light, television, cars, airplanes, and a dozen other wonders arise? Sure, Several of those had European precursors. Smart and creative people aren't unique to any location. But they rooted and developed in America because that's where they were able to root and develop. Because we had the meta-narrative for it. Now, unfortunately, that's no longer true. American universities teach our children that having a meta-narrative makes them a primitive fool. Though they are permitted outrage, which somehow makes them enlightened. Whole disciplines are devoted to destroying meta-narratives, half-destroying young minds along with them. There are necessary discussions to be had about the quality and openness of meta-narratives, but Paul Rosenberg says to blindly trash them is almost literally to throw the baby out with the bathwater. These academics are not demonstrating intelligence, they're demonstrating avarice, combined with arrogance and ultimately with malice. Americans retained a few meta-narratives, even through the 1960s. For instance, he says millions of us were deeply committed to, to getting mankind into space, and we were doing it until the rug was pulled out from under us. Now, we also had the hippie movement. Regardless of their errors, the hippies, especially the early ones, really were seeking enlightenment and the expansion of consciousness. Unsurprisingly, 18-year-olds took things too far, but... The initial drive, at least in his corner of it, he says, was legitimate. 
But the point is this. They were doing something big, something grand, something that mattered on the species level. And it's precisely that kind of mission that opens you up, gives you a backbone, and makes you truly alive. Unfortunately, Paul Rosenberg says, alas, those also are lost. Bitcoiners and homeschoolers, people willing to suffer for what they believe, have purpose in their lives, but the mainstream narrative, which millions imbibe via TV and social media, seeks to overwhelm such ideas, drowning out any serious consideration. So he says, I'm going to tell you how this happened, because I think it will help a certain number of people. Now, if you want references and you want precision, he says, then go to our subscription letter, because this is more of a barstool rant. But it's not wrong. So here's his explanation of what happened. Europe was devastated by two world wars. Two consecutive generations of young men were more than decimated. Millions of women lost the men in their lives and learned instead to lean on the state. Now, that's a massive generalization, of course, but there's a whole lot of truth in it. The Enlightenment took a bad turn and threw off a new class of intellectuals who sought by any means available to ensconce themselves in positions of power. As always, it bred corruption. The culture of the West, he says, has been directly attacked for quite some time. And yes, the Soviets funded a lot of it during their dark reign. One by one, the pillars of Western civilization have been misrepresented, ridiculed, and removed. And finally, money created without cost, in other words, fiat currency, allowed rulers to substantially replace the parents of the West, and especially fathers, who are consistently portrayed as dullards and oafs in popular entertainments. Got a problem? Run to daddy government. They have a program for you. He says at some point the free money game will end, but it has made personal virtues irrelevant since 1971. So there you have the crux of it. Once we had a meta-narrative, with it we accomplished great things and felt legitimately good about ourselves. Now we don't. And the West has no cohesion, no direction, no reason for excellence, and no pride in itself. Now, I understand that uh, this may be kind of a bitter truth. You know, I'm, here's a spoonful of sugar to wash it down, but no, it's a truth that needs to be faced. And imperfect as the founding generation may be, the one thing that they got right, and I mean absolutely right, was that their efforts were predicated on the idea that liberty would provide the solutions. I know that, you know, the 1619 Project says, well, you know, it was only liberty for white people and blacks and slaves, and they didn't, they didn't have any liberty. They missed the point. There were plenty of people in the founding generation who understood that slavery was an aberration, that it was a departure from the principles of liberty. But unfortunately, it was also an institution which was accepted by most people in that time. So while they may not have ended it themselves, they certainly set the stage for it to be ended at, in, at a time when it could take hold. And again, liberty was the dynamic that drove what they did. That was the reason that they separated from England. Why? Because our liberty matters. Our freedoms are God-given. They're not subject to the king and, and to his abuse. And if he can't take care of it, 
then we will separate ourselves from him and we'll take care of ourselves. The Constitution, same thing. Liberty was the goal. Says so right there in the preamble. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Pretty lofty stuff, but hey, if you want to be a super spreader of truth, these are the kind of things you'll want to be thinking about and living up to. This is the Disciples of Liberty, and you are listening to the America Out Loud Network.